Sometimes what we really need is only revealed when God removes everything we don't need. Faith believes God's promises enough to act on them before seeing results. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open to 1 Kings, 1 Kings uh, 17. Uh, as you know, we're in a study in the kings of Israel. Just uh, by way of historical context, a few decades before this, the unified kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon had split in two. And so now we have two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which are two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and that's called Judah. God anointed uh, Jeroboam uh, king over the northern tribe and made him a promise that if he followed God, he would give him an enduring family dynasty. Well, as we know from a couple of weeks ago, contrary to God's explicit command, Jeroboam instituted his own uh, idolatrous religion as literally a means of political power. It was a matter of staying in control. And so he led Israel into idolatry formalized it, and made it a state uh, religion. And the northern kingdom never recovered. The northern kingdom had 19 kings. 100% of them were considered evil in God's sight. They rejected God. They pursued idolatry. The southern kingdom had 19 kings and one queen, and eight of them, a little less than half, were righteous in God's sight, and the rest rejected God and pursued idols. So just by way of timeline, Jeroboam reigned for 22 years. His son Nadab ruled for two years. Nadab was assassinated by a usurper named Baasha from the tribe of Issachar. And Baasha then killed every single male descendant of Jeroboam, which God had promised would happen because Jeroboam made Israel to sin. Baasha reigned 24 years, and he was a wicked king. His son, Ella, E-L-I-H, he reigned for two years before he was assassinated by Zimri, who was one of his military commanders. Zimri then slaughtered all the male descendants of Baasha, as God had promised through his servant, Jehu. Israel then crowned Omri, O-M-R-I. He was the commander of the uh, northern tribe's army. They, they crowned him as king. And when Zimri found out about it, he burned the king's palace down with himself in it. And he reigned for seven days. So in seven days, he killed all the descendants of Baasha and then committed suicide by burning the palace down over his head. So half of Israel supported Omri, who was king of the, I mean, who was commander of the army as king. The other half of Israel supported a character named Tibni. Well, for four years, the northern tribes were in literal civil war, and there was intertribal warfare between who was going to rule the ten northern tribes. After four years, Tibni was executed, and Omri is king. Now, Omri reigned 12 years total. 
and he built the capital city of Samaria, which was an elevated hilltop, good place to build the capital. And he was the wickedest king in Israel to date. He had a son that you probably have heard him named Ahab. And Ahab became king after Omri's death, and he reigned 22 years. And God's summary assessment of Ahab is found in 1 Kings 16. So if you're at 1 Kings uh, 17, just go up a couple of verses. We're going to start in 1 Kings 29. This is God's assessment of this individual's life. Quote, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar, Baal, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Just a sidebar, you would not want that on your tombstone. Here's the principle. God's assessment of your life is the only one that matters. And it matters for all eternity. God's assessment of your life is the only one that matters. And it matters for all eternity. See, Ahab followed all the sins of Jeroboam. The golden calves, the democratic priesthood, the counterfeit feast days, and so on and so forth. But he also made a political alliance with the kingdom of Sidon, northern of Israel, today's Lebanon. Ethbaal was the king of the Sidonians, and Ahab sealed this treaty by marrying his daughter, who was named Jezebel. I've seen some interesting pets named Jezebel. I've never seen anybody name their daughter Jezebel for probably good reason. Now, here's an interesting sidebar principle. When you marry someone, you marry their family, correct? You know that. You also marry their priorities, and you also marry the God they worship. You become like the God you worship and the God your spouse worships. Most of us in this room are old enough to understand that, and we cry out to God that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren would understand that before they say, I do for the rest of my life. You become like the God you worship. Violent gods produce violent worshipers. Licentious gods produce lecherous worshipers, and material gods produce greedy worshipers. You can tell what somebody worships by watching their behavior. That's the God they worship, because we always become like the God we worship. Choose who you will worship very carefully. Now, Jezebel brought Baal worship. Now, I grew up in a farmhouse, and we said Baal. We didn't say Baal. It's actually Baal, but we said Baal, you know. Anyway, he, she brought Baal worship to Israel. Now, Baal was a supreme male deity in Canaan and Phoenicia. The name Baal means Lord or Master. 
and Ashtaroth was his female consort. Now, Baal was considered the god of the weather. He was the storm god. He was the god of fertility. He was thought to have power to produce rain, cause crops to grow, and cause animals and people to reproduce. Now, that was a very dry climate there. If you didn't get rain, you didn't get crops. If you didn't get crops, you starved. So the favor of the weather god was really, really essential. Now, Baal was the god of fertility, and as such, worshiping him involved ritual sexual prostitution with his priests and priestesses and a great deal of associated sexual perversion. Furthermore, his favor was often sought by human sacrifice. Usually, the worshiper would sacrifice their firstborn child. When the Bible uses the phrase, you'll see this throughout the Old Testament, quote, he made his son pass through the fire. That means that that individual burned their son alive or their child alive as a sacrifice designed to win the favor of a false god. And you say, what kind of religion would command that? You would be amazed at what Satan will do to his worshipers, right? It's called destruction. Now, before they entered the promised land, Yahweh, the God of Israel, had commanded and forbidden Israel to follow any of the gods of the land. You can obviously see why at that point. Now, Ahab's reign, he reigned uh, mid-8th century, was or 9th century, uh, was a spiritual low point of the northern tribes. Under the influence of Jezebel, he built a temple to Baal, he erected an altar Baal, and he made an Asherah. Asherah was the female consort of Baal, and she was represented by a limbless tree trunk, or usually a pole, a wooden pole, and they often carved her images on these poles and erected these poles on what's called the high places because most idolatrous worship took place on mounds, hilltops, places of elevation. You know, you get closer to your God that way. And they worshiped there and involved a great deal of gross sexual perversion, which made God furious, but it was very obviously addicting to the Israelites. Unless we look at them and point the finger, our culture is sexually addicted and perverse beyond comprehension. Most of you only have a dim awareness of that. Keep it dim. Most of the details you do not want to know, you will throw up. Okay? Into this dark setting, this is spiritually dark setting, evil seems to rule without restraint. God intervenes, and he always does. It's important for us to realize today we live in a spiritually dark culture, dark world. God is always in control, and his, his plans are always perfect. He does what he does according to his divine wisdom. Most of the time, we do not understand it. That's why we walk by faith. Now, let's see God's intervention through the life of this individual, Elijah. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, quote, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, according to my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Here's the principle. God loves his people so much that he may impose drastic consequences when they sin. 
God loves his people so much that he may impose drastic consequences when they sin. Now, Elijah just bursts on the scene with no introduction. We really know very little about his life, except for this brief description. Literally, he was born in Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. Tishbe was the town or the region of Gilead. It's north of Moab, south of, uh, of, uh, of, of Lebanon or uh, Syria. It was a rural area. It's fertile, it's mountainous, uh, and, uh, and it, the tribe of Gad lives inside this region. So Elijah was a mountain man, and he's on the east side of the Jordan River. We can safely assume that God has been working in Elijah's life for several years prior to verse 1, right? He was called to go to the palace and confront Ahab and pronounce God's judgment on him. God always prepares his people before he gives them an assignment. So you and I have assignments from God that he will reveal to us in the future. He is in the process of preparing you today for the assignments he has for you tomorrow. So when he gives you an assignment, what do you say? Yes, Lord, even if you don't understand why it is occurring. God routinely does stuff in the present that we do not understand in preparation in order to prepare us for the ministry that he has for us in the future. And only later do we look back and go, oh, that's why that had to happen to me. Uh Uh-huh. He has purpose and plans for everything. So apparently, Ahab's been on the throne for about 14 years at this point before God sent Elijah to confront him, which is evidence that God is very, very patient. God is very merciful. He gives Ahab 14 years to repent before he sends judgment on him. So the source of Elijah's authority, you say, well, where did Elijah get the authority to command a drought, right? I mean, that's pretty big. It only comes from God himself. Elijah uses this phrase, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. He's basically saying, as certain as the existence of God Almighty, so certain will God's word be that this drought will surely come to pass. And then he uses an interesting phrase, before whom I stand. Now this phrase indicates that someone is continually in the presence of a king, stands in the presence of the king to serve and to represent the king. So if you stand in the presence of a king, it means you're intimate with the king, right? You have a relationship with the king, and the king is going to use you to represent them. Elijah says, I stand before Almighty God, Yahweh, the king and the Lord of glory. He spent much time with God. He was intimate with God. God could entrust this mission with him. And God called him a very difficult mission. Elijah goes to Ahab not knowing whether he's going to survive the encounter. I mean, we know the end of the story. We read the whole chapter and go, oh boy, that was good stuff. He's going in there thinking, obviously, if God's commanded me to pronounce judgment, I could die on the spot at that point. That's part of the territory. But he was obedient. Now, Israel had forsaken God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who led them through the wilderness, who gave them miracle after miracle after miracle, who protected them, who gave them the land, and they turned their back on him. And centuries earlier, God had promised that if you forsake me, one of the consequences is going to be a drought on the land. Look at Deuteronomy 28, 23. Very graphic. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you iron. Obviously, you won't grow anything. 
The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So in an area where if you don't get rain, you don't grow crops. If you don't grow crops, you starve. A lack of rain was life and death. And God says, if you rebel against me, one of the consequences will be I'm going to discipline you with drought. So the God of heaven and earth now imposes a drought on the land and he announces it through Elijah. Elijah has been praying about this for years. James 5, 17 to 18 says, quote, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed what? Earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, let me give you the agricultural calendar here. Israel depended on semi-annual rain cycles. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the, the early rains and the late rains. Well, the early rains took place October, November, right? About a 60-day window, and then it got dried out again. And the later rains occurred in March, April. So if you don't get these two semi-annual rain cycles, you don't get a crop. So Elijah comes to confront Ahab probably in October, which means it hadn't rained since April. So they've had six months of normal, no rain, April to October, and they're expecting the rain this month in October. And Elijah said, it ain't going to happen. These years, plural, until I announce it. Multiple years of drought were pronounced at that point in time. God was going to show Israel that Baal, the god of the storm, the god of the rain, the god they worshipped, was an impotent imposter. This is direct confrontation. Baal is supposed to produce rain and allow crops to grow and animals to reproduce and humans to reproduce. And Israel's worshipping this false god and God says, we're going to find out if your god is as strong as he is. There's going to be no rain for years. He was also going to use this to discipline his people for their sins. Now, God's first judgment on Israel wasn't the drought. God's first judgment on Israel was a famine for his word. A famine for his word. God said, since you, obey, since you refuse to obey my word, I'm going to take it away from you. You're not going to have access to my word anymore. Well, how does that work? Well, who's the only man in, in Israel who is speaking God's word? Elijah. And God tells Elijah, you're leaving the country now. Ahab and Jezebel are going to try and kill you. The first chapter 17, there's an interesting phrase that says the word of the Lord. You'll see the word of the Lord or a derivative of that in this chapter seven different times. It's extremely clear that God is saying, my word is essential to accomplish my will. If God withdraws his word from your life, what are you left with? You're left with your only your own understanding. You know what your own understanding will do? Reliably lead you away from God. God says one of the judgments in the end times is going to be there's going to be a famine for my word. Since you refuse to obey it, I'm going to take it away from you. How wise are people who do not have God's word or do not follow it? You know them. You have some of the neighbors, you work with some of them. Scripture says they're foolish. 
So God's saying, if you don't honor my word, if you reject it, I'm going to remove it from you. You will no longer have the option. And God tells Elijah, go to the book Kareth. Kareth comes from the word kerat. It means to cut. It means to cut down, to cut off, to cut out. It's almost like surgery or cut with a sword. Now, Kareth, this brook, was a wadi. It was a stream bed in the bottom of a ravine, a V-shaped ravine, and it was cut out by torrents of water uh, during flash floods. When do you get flash floods? When it rains. No rain, no flash floods, right? So we're not exactly sure where it is, but we know it's east of the Jordan. It's out of the land of Israel, and uh, we know that it flowed into the Jordan River as long as it was running. Now, so interesting use of this word Elijah, in some ways, now is cut off from his connection with Israel. He's out of the land. He's across the border. And interesting that Yahweh, God of Israel, also had some cutting to do in Elijah's life. What did Jesus say in John 15, 2? Every branch in me that bears fruit, God's going to what? Prune it so that it bears more fruit. Isn't that fascinating? If you want something to bear more fruit, you have to take something away. Which is always interesting. If God wants you and I to bear more fruit, then he reserves the right to take out of your life whatever he chooses. You okay with that? By the way, he's not asking. <laughs> he, he, he loves you so much, he's going to do what he knows is best for you and I, regardless of our opinion. I grew up in a farm community, and we used to prune grapes. And a farmer told me one time, look, one of the reasons you prune is you can either grow wood or you can grow grapes. And if you're growing wood and leaves, you're not growing grapes. So you've got to get rid of some of this stuff in order for the life force of the vine to go into fruit instead of just growing wood and leaves that you can't sell, right? So God knows exactly what he needs to take away from our lives in order for us to be more fruitful. And that almost always involves pruning. And we don't like the pruning shears. We like to use the pruning shears on someone else. We don't like God using the pruning shears on us, right? So God told him to go to Kareth, which means to cut across the border. And God says, I'm going to provide for you there. You're going to drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to bring you food at that exact location. That's kind of unusual. Ravens are not known to be really good parents. As a matter of fact, they sometimes kind of forget to feed their young, you know. Um, so this is somewhat, not somewhat supernatural, it's really supernatural. You're going to have a, a bird that can't manage to feed their young and they're going to bring me food. Boy, that's really going to be something to see, right? In addition, they're an unclean bird, which for a good Jewish boy like Elijah was, you know, that was anathema. They normally fed on carrion. Called roadkill for those of you who wanted contemporary, you know, designation. However, ravens are one of the most intelligent birds in the world. They have fabulous eyesight. They have fabulous hearing, along with a crow. They're very, very bright. We have no idea where this food came from. I don't know. The ravens might have gone to Ahab's court and stolen it and brought it straight to Elijah. For we, we just don't know. Uh, the word bread here means food. It translates food, and it could mean berries, fruit nuts, meat, whatever it happens to be. We don't know where, but we do know that Elijah was going to be reduced to a place of dependence. If God did not provide, he does not survive. 
That rhymes. You might want to write that down. If God does not provide, I do not survive. See, we think, well, we depend on the government. I would have a recommendation that you not do that. You, rec you, you, you depend only on the Lord. You know, it's interesting. There's a time for public action. There's a, go there's a time to go confront Ahab. Man, that's, that's high-level drama. And then there's a time for private reflection. There's a time to be alone. There's a time to be obscure. There's a time that the old King James says, Elijah, go hide yourself. Get out of sight. Stop being around people. Our contemporary culture has no way of doing that. Our culture is so addicted to loud and fast and activity, and our culture is allergic to slow and quiet and alone and reflection. And God said, Elijah, I've got some lessons for you. I'm going to have to build your faith. I'm going to have to prepare you for what I know is coming, Mount Carmel. And to do that, you need to be alone with me, away from the noise of the culture. His faith needed to be strengthened, and God was going to do that alone on the other side of the river. Verse 5. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's a fancy way of saying he obeyed, right? For he went and lived by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Here's the principle. Sometimes what we really need is only revealed when God removes everything we don't need. Sometimes what we really need is only revealed when God removes everything we don't need. I want you to notice how God is leading Elijah one step at a time. Elijah never knows what the next step is. He only knows to wait for God to tell him what the next step is, right? God told him to leave home, go to the palace. He goes. God tells him to flee to the brook, Kareth. He does. And whenever he obeys, he experiences God's provision. God says, I'm going to send ravens. You can drink from the brook. Sure enough, they show up. The ravens showed up on schedule morning and night. He probably said he's watched by then. They were so regular, right? He was isolated. He was all alone. No other people. I recommend that highly. When it's completely quiet, it's easier to what? Hear God's still small voice. God loves to speak to us in a still small voice, and the culture, the world system energized by Satan, loves to speak to us in noise and speed and more of the same, right? Most people would rather do anything than be alone for a significant period of time. Most people can't stand silence. If I sat here for a minute and did not speak with you, most of you would wet your pants. <laughs> you would. Many people can't be home alone without noise on. They can't stand silence. Maybe God wants us to be quiet because he has something to say to us. By the way, Elijah doesn't get a free pass to avoid the drought. He's going to experience the drought. He prayed for the drought. 
Now he gets to live with the drought, right? He's going to live just like his fellow Israelites. The brook was his only source of water, and what? It dried up. I wonder if he watched it get smaller and smaller every day. No rain, you know, the brook gets smaller. And finally, there are only pools left, and he's drinking out of the pools. And then the pools get down to the mud. And they're gone. You know, sooner or later, the things we depend in this life will dry up. Health dries up. Yeah, I'm evidence of that. Money disappears. Careers and jobs end. Friendships change when people move away. Our memory slowly disappears. But we don't notice that, right? <laughs> Heck, our skin dries up. You know, look in the mirror, right? Milt Cole said something one time that stuck with me 35 years later. Aging is the process of coping with losses. You can write that one down. Aging is the process of coping with losses. How you do that depends on how close you walk with Jesus. Sooner or later, all the brooks in our life that we depend on will dry up. What did Elijah do? Nothing. He stayed by the brook. See, that's not what I would do. I would say, God, the brook's drying up. Don't you think it's time for me to leave here? I mean, can you see it shrinking and shrinking? I need to get out of here before this thing dries up. I could die. I don't know what kind of conversations Elijah had with the Lord, but we're tempted to respond to our circumstances, and Elijah did nothing until God told him what to do next. God said, you go to the brook, Kareth, which means that's your marching orders. I'll tell you when I want you to make a change. I have no idea how dry the brook was before God told him to leave. I mean, did he drink the very last of the last pool? And God says, okay, it's time to go. But he waited to hear from God, and he didn't take his cue from circumstances. Good lesson to us. And God told him to travel to a city named Zarephath, which is in the foreign city of Sidon. By the way, the brook Kareth means to cut. Zarephath means to refine, to purify, to smelt. It's a metallurgy term, and it's located between the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. So God takes Elijah from cutting to a crucible. God's transplanted Elijah a number of places. He tells him, go from your home in Gilead to the palace, go from the palace to Kareth, go from Kareth to Zarephath. You know what you don't see? You don't see Elijah arguing. That's interesting. I probably would. I'd say, God, you know, we're doing a lot of trekking around here. What's going on with this? God's got purpose every place he moves him. Every place he moves him, God has purpose. Zarephath is the home turf of Jezebel. She came from Sidon, Phoenicia, north of Israel. This is the home of Baal. God's taking his servant into enemy territory and going to hide him there. By the way, it's more than a 100-mile walk up there, as the raven flies, no pun intended. He probably traveled at night. Because Ahab was looking for him. And not only was Ahab looking for him, there were probably many, many Israelites in Israel that were pretty hacked off at him because he called down a drought on them and they had to turn him into Ahab in a heartbeat because their life was now inconvenienced because of their sin, right? And God, interestingly, says, 
Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow to provide for you there. Now, if you understood that era, you would roll on the floor laughing. In that era, widows had nothing. They were extraordinarily poor. There was no government safety net. There was no life insurance. There was no social security. Most of the time, they were reduced to gleaning in the fields, begging, or the kindness of relatives if they had any. Life expectancy wasn't exactly a long time back then. Furthermore, Phoenicia, the whole area of Phoenicia, where did they get their food from? Israel. Israel's been in the drought for over a year, probably a year and a half at this point in time. So God's going to use a widow who has nothing to provide for this prophet and her family. And God commanded this widow that she's going to provide for him. Wrap your head around that when you think your bank account's getting low. Right? Verse 10. What did Elijah do? He obeyed. He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She's not only poor, she's nearly dead. And God says, this is the widow that's going to provide for you. You think God's told you some hard things? Get your seatbelts on, right? Here's the principle. God often guides and provides for his people in unexpected ways. Now that's kind of an understatement, right? That's what we call a woda. Whoa, duh. God often guides and provides for his people in unexpected ways. Think about this. God leads into a completely unexpected place. Enemy territory, Jezebel's homeland, where Baal's worshipped. God leads into an unexpected person. A Gentile, not a Jew. Impoverished, no resources. A widow, no social standing. And her family. Now, we're going to find out in a few minutes, God unexpectedly provides for him. God provides food in a famine. God restores her son from the dead. God grants the widow eternal life based on a profession of faith. And God strengthens Israel, or Elijah's faith so that he's going to be equipped to bring the nation of Israel back from spiritual death, back to the worship of Yahweh. And he does it all in a foreign city. Now, God does the same thing today. I bet he's done the same thing in your life in the last month. You're out and about running errands, minding your own business, hoping God doesn't mess with your life too much today. I know how you think, because I think that way too. I like my agenda. I like my calendar. I like my schedule. God says, I'm not impressed, Brad. You're not nearly as smart as you think you are. I have a strategy for your schedule today, and I'm number one on it, and I'm not asking you if I can mess with your calendar, because I'm gonna. Right? So we're out and about doing our own business, and God arranges for a divine appointment. You ever had one of those? You just happened to run into somebody you weren't expecting to see, for whatever reason. And in a place you didn't expect, and you have a little conversation about whatever. And God takes that little conversation and does eternally significant things with it, and most of the time you are clueless about what he's doing. It's only later someone says, 
You know, you dropped that line on me about six months ago. Da, 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 da. Man, I thought about that for weeks. That was the Holy Spirit, right? Or you said, you know, so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, I'll call them. You know, you talked about your medical doctor who you see every week, right? Or other people, whatever it happens to be. God is always taking the ordinary and turning it into eternally extraordinary significant things. And most of the time he does it while we're running errands, right? We're not paying attention. He does it all the time. So Elijah travels to Zarephath, and just outside of the gate of the city, he's a widow gathering sticks so she can make a fire, right? He's going to try and identify the widow. God says, I pro- I've, 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 I've already prepared a widow to provide for you, and he's going, well, I don't know who she is, right? How do I identify who this widow is? So we stay engaged in her conversation. He says, can you get me a drink? And as she's going to get the water, he asks her for a piece of bread. Now, getting water is pretty common, courtesy. Asking for bread in the middle of a famine from a stranger, that's a little bigger ask, right? That's a bigger imposition. And she says, very interesting, as the Lord your God lives. Now, that's like, I am telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, right? That's what we do in court. She says, the Lord your God lives. Now, she obviously recognizes that Elijah is a Jew. She obviously believes that the God of Israel exists and is alive, which is interesting. Clearly, the Lord's been working on her heart. And she tells Elijah that she only has one handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil, probably olive oil. And they make bread from that and a little water, maybe salt if you're lucky, but usually not. She's going to make one last meal for her and her son, and then they're going to die from starvation. Pretty desperate. Pretty impoverished. No capacity to provide for Elijah. Verse 13. How does Elijah respond to this? Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. For Thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Verse 15, how does she respond? So she went and did, according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which she spoke through Elijah. Here's the principle. Faith believes God's promises enough to act on them before seeing results. Faith believes God's promises and acts on them before seeing results. It's interesting that God's first word to this widow is what? Do not fear. That's a good word for us. We live in a reasonably hostile culture. It's going to get more hostile, I promise you, as we move through time. And God says to us, do not fear. Why? Because you live in a culture that agrees with your values? No. has nothing to do with that. Because you serve a God that is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, and lives in you, and will always be with you, and will fight your battles for you. So Elijah now is going to give her a faith test. He says, go ahead and make a meal, but make, make one for me first. You know what that means? That handful of flour and that little oil are going to make the last bread and it's going to go to Elijah. But he says, you make one for yourself. 
Now that requires a fair amount of faith. I'm making my very last biscuit, if you will, and it's given to him, and he tells me to make one for myself, and there's going to be nothing in the bowl and nothing in the, in the oil jar. And then he says, you can do that because God has promised that your bowl of flour and your jar of oil will not run out until God sends rain on the earth. Now, obviously, Sidon's suffering from a drought as well, and she demonstrates her faith. She bakes the bread with the last of her flour and gives it to him. And he, God rewards her faith by supernaturally providing her with flour and oil, but only enough for the next meal, right? Elijah discovers not only can God meet his needs, but God also cares about the Gentiles. Now, the Jews at that point thought God cared about them and them only. God's demonstrating that he's a God of the entire universe, as we're going to find out. God so loved the world that he gave his son, obviously, for the world. It's interesting, Baal can't provide for human needs, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, can provide for human needs. And we need to remember that. You know, God provides for our needs, and how does he provide? One day at a time. You know, have you ever thought about, why didn't God just magically give her a 55-gallon barrel of flour, another 55-gallon barrel of olive oil, and she's good. I mean, you know, she's good. Well... I'll tell you why. Number one, when everybody else is starving and you have olive oil and flour, you're going to get robbed and probably killed by the weekend, and it's going to be taken away at that point in time. So God only gave her enough for one day. You know what that meant? She had to trust him each day. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Give us this day our daily bread, and we, of course, love three freezers in the garage just loaded with stuff, right? <laughs> See, we, what we would rather do, what we humans do, we only want to exercise faith once. We say, God, look, here's the deal. I'm going to trust you, and if you bless me so abundantly like the lottery, I promise you I'll never bother you again. <laughs> I, I promise I will never come banging on your door again. Just give me the lottery, because now I get to see it and I don't have to exercise faith, and so I don't have to keep talking with you. And God says, the relationship is the deal, though, right? So if I bless you with abundance and you go away forever, that's not the point. The point is our love relationship is what it's all about. And if I need to have you trust me once a day so we can have a conversation and you will learn to trust me to provide for your needs then your faith is strengthened and our relationship grows. God draws us closer to him often when we have to depend on him. Amen? Say amen. It's true. You know it and I know it, right? Okay. So God has provided one day at a time, and it says it didn't run out until God sent rain. That's a multi-year process. Verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Elijah said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Here's the principle. God's grace not only supplies our needs in this life, God also provides eternal life for those who trust him. God's grace not only supplies our needs in this life, God also provides eternal life for those who trust him. So it's interesting that the sickness of this son mirrors the spiritual sickness and death of Israel. God is allowing this widow's son to die. You think God could have prevented their son from dying? Of course. So he's going to allow the son to die to demonstrate his power in resurrecting him. Remember, Jesus had some good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus gets sick, and Jesus knows about it. And he says, Lazarus is sick, but we're not going to heal him. And he stays away for four days. Lazarus dies. Jesus comes, and Martha says, and Mary says, both sisters, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus didn't tell him at that time, I didn't show up so he would die. But he did let him die so that he could demonstrate his power and resurrect him so that the Jews would believe that he is the Son of God. What are, what are we saying? I'm saying sometimes God allows our situation to get worse before it gets better so that when he does intervene and make it better, we will give him the glory instead of taking credit ourselves, right? It has to be sometimes so desperate, so unsolvable, that when it does get solved, we say, that was clearly God to do that at that point in time. Now, this widow seems to have a guilty conscience over her past sins. She blames Elijah and accuses Elijah's God of killing her son in retribution, so she thinks that God is a God of retaliation. That's the kind of God she thinks Elijah has. And Elijah doesn't argue with her, he just says, give me your son. It must have been a young son because she was clutching him, and Elijah carried this child up to the stairs to the rooftop room. Many, many times in that culture you had a flat roof and you could build a little shelter up there and that's where he was staying, obviously. Guest room. And accessible by an outside staircase. If you've ever been to the land of Holy Land, you can see that. Now Elijah doesn't understand why her son has died either, but he sorrows with this woman. And it's interesting, when he talks to God, it almost sounds like he's accusing God. God, why did you allow this son to die? Have you ever asked God why? Yeah. Did he tell you? Probably not. It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to argue with God. It's okay to express your doubts to God. It's okay to be angry with God. God's big enough to deal with whatever you got. Just saying, right? What he really wants from us is honesty. He wants us to be honest with him so he can demonstrate his capacity to meet all our needs. So when Elijah said, God, why'd you allow this son to die? He doesn't know either. God's going to show him something as well. Many times in Scripture, by the way, God's power and blessing are shown to be transferred by laying on of hands. Jesus was always touching people. The power of God 
literally transferred from him to the person he was touching. God's power passes through his representatives into the body of the one in need. In this case, Elijah stretches his whole body out over this child three times, and he prays that God will restore the child's life. You know what that means? Apparently nothing happened the first two times. What about if Elijah gave up after two times? How often do you keep praying until you see Jesus face to face? You never stop praying. You never stop interceding. You never stop crying out to God. Always, 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 persistent prayer throughout Scripture is asking it shall be given to you, and seeking you shall find, knocking it shall be opened to you. It's not a promise that God's always going to do what you want. It's a command to keep on praying, keep on persisting. If you were in the service this morning, you heard it. The third time, God answered his prayer, and the child came back to life. This is the first recorded instance in the Bible where God records someone being brought back to life from the dead. And God chose to allow the child to die and also bring the child back to life. And you have situations in your life, and I have situations in my life, and we say, God, can you fix this? And he said, trust me. And I say, God, can you fix this? He says, trust me. And I say, God, can you fix it? He said, parent, you know, the first two times, trust me. I said, I'm not interested in trusting you. I want this thing fixed. He says, no, you got it wrong. You trust me because I'm God. And I love you more than you love you. And I know what's better for you than you know for you. And that's exactly what happened here. Now, what does the mother say? She says, now I know what? That you are a man of God. You represent the God of glory and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. See, her concept before is that God was a God of retribution. My son died because God's paying me back for my sins. She shall found out that God's, Elijah's God was a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of life. God loved her and her son so much that he not only fed him in a famine, he also restored her son to life after he died. She now places her faith in the God of Elijah. Now, think about what this did for Elijah. God knows that Mount Carmel's coming up next week. I mean, we're going to talk about it next week, Lord willing, and maybe a few more months in the future, but Elijah, God has Elijah's faith on a weightlifting track. Elijah, your faith is going to need to be strengthened because the test I have for you to bring Israel back on Mount Carmel will require a robust faith, and I need to strengthen it. So everything God's doing with Elijah up to this point in time is spiritual weightlifting, spiritual weightlifting, obedience, trust me. And every time he does that, his faith gets stronger and stronger, and God knows what he has for him in the future and why he's doing that. God does the same thing for us. If God could raise the physically dead, then he could revive the spiritually dead nation of Israel and bring them back to the Lord. Elijah had to believe that or he wouldn't have gone to Mount Carmel. These miracles demonstrate that God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God with supernatural power, and Baal is an imposter, and he's powerless. By the way, God raises the dead every day. We, we get impressed with physical resurrection. We get impressed with physical healing. You can be resurrected from the dead in this life. You can be healed in this life. Guess what? You and I are going to die yet, right? I mean, the Bible says what? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus said that when people hear the gospel and place their faith in his payment for their sins, they move from spiritual death to spiritual life, and we see resurrection from the dead in this church almost every single time we show up for a service. Anytime someone goes forward and says, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior, they have moved 
from death, from hell, to life and to heaven. And most of us go, wow, cool. That's supernatural. Your salvation was supernatural. That was a miracle. You went from death to life, right? What did Jesus say? John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. See, this is amazing. When we tell people about Jesus, which we're commanded to do, we're invited to do, we're privileged to do, we're part of God's plan to do what? Save people from spiritual death and give them eternal life. And Elijah's faith was strengthened and God is doing the exact same thing in our lives to prepare us for what he has for us in the future. Okay, let's review and then Al will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Principle one, God's assessment of your life is the only one that matters and it matters for all eternity. Stop paying attention to human opinion. It's going to change next week anyway, right? Number two, God loves his people so much that he may impose drastic consequences when they sin. God was willing to impose a drought for three and a half years. That is pain, suffering, starvation, and death. That's how much he hates sin, and that's how much he loves his people. That's how much he loves you and I. Number three, sometimes what we really need is only revealed when God removes everything we don't need. So when God takes things away from your life, he's taken away what you don't need to show you what you really do need. God often guides and provides for his people in unexpected ways. This week, some of us will experience that. Many of us will if we have our eyes open. Faith believes God's promises enough to act on them before seeing results. If God promised it, it's reality. And lastly, God's grace not only supplies our needs in this life, God also provides eternal life for those who trust him. And I trust this week that the Lord will open doors in your life and open your eyes to see what he wants you to see. This Kings is very, very practical. It talks about life, its own self, and decisions people make and the outcomes of that. So I would encourage you, read ahead. Lord willing, we'll continue with Elijah next week. I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.